1: Hello! Welcome to SBRR, a retrospective on Spirit Box Radio. I'll be going through the show part by part, thinking about the themes and my intentions as a writer. These retrospectives will include heavy spoilers for the show, so please go back and listen before you tune into them. Already caught up? Awesome. I'm Ayra, creator of Spirit Box Radio. Welcome back to the show. Hey folks, we're back with another close character examination this time around. We're going to be putting a lens to the Enfield family, primarily focusing on Anna, Kitty and Sam, but also thinking a little bit about M too. The Enfields are an extraordinarily dysfunctional bunch. To start, let's build a full picture of them and the context that they exist in, because there's some little details in there that I want to talk about, but which you might have missed when you listen through the show. M, who is the mother of Sam, Kitty and Anna was born Molly Marie Enfield to her parents who had desperately wanted a child for many years. They made a deal with the man in the flat cap to get one, and they forfeit their own lives in exchange for hers. They were pretty brilliant archonists though, and they thought out ways to avoid the kinds of situations they'd heard other people getting into when they asked the man in the flat cap for children. Specifically, they wanted to avoid having and raising one of his weird antichrist-adjacent experiments, the Impossible Children, who were born with incredible amounts of arcane power, but can't age into adulthood unless they consume human souls. In the show, we see this happening with the Scarcemongers, who feed Maria Gillespie human souls through ceremonially feeding her soup made of human flesh. So, M's parents try to circumvent this by making it clear that M is to have no arcane energy of her own. This means she won't be able to do any magic at all, and hopefully means that they get to circumvent the possibility of M being born as an impossible child. Unfortunately for them, the man in the flat cap is a tricksy guy, and there's actually a fascinating existing story about a child being born without something, which is, in a way, kind of the inverse of, or in other ways analogous to, depending on your perspective, what arcanism represents in the show, and that's Mary, Mother of Christ. <laughs> this isn't something that's very often talked about in Christian literature, but Mary—that's Jesus's mum, Mary. You'll know her. Usually, she's in blue with a big white headscarf on and a halo, holding a funny-looking baby. Her, she was born without original sin. Uh, I could get into the weeds of why and how that ends up happening, but the point is that it does happen, and the story exists. And from Mary, the story says that the Saviour is born. So. Jesus is only possible because Mary exists. So it follows, from the man in the flat cap's point of view, that from an anti-Mary, a destroyer might be born. Like the opposite of a saviour. You get me? So M, whose full name is Molly Marie, which are both derivatives or variants of the name Mary, is born without arcanism. So she might one day be able to have a child that is basically... An ender of worlds yeah it's fun and she's molly marie and it's like mary mary and in the show the man in the flat cap says mary mary quite contrary but like it, it's a double negative so if she's mary mary then she's not it's a funny joke to me and maybe only to me but honestly that's fine sometimes you got to put a little joke in there for yourself i maintain this it's very important to do this as a writer so the man in the flat cap's problem is that he's bound by his own rule set and that means that even though Madame Marie has been born specifically for this purpose, the man in the flat cap needs her to be willingly compliant to an extent for this all to happen, right? He has to have a contract with her and she has to consent to it. Like He has to condition M then to meet his criteria and to make a deal with him on her own terms. and. She ends up doing that because he's basically constructed the perfect circumstances for her to be isolated. She's from a family of incredibly gifted arcanists. Both her parents die when she's young. She's raised by her grandmother who owns an apothecary shop. So she's surrounded by arcane things all of the time. Her grandmother is an incredibly skilled apothecary, but she's not able to do any arcane things herself. She can't engage with any of it. She doesn't have any of her own arcane energy. She can't do magic. And in a very magical family, she's very isolated as well as being literally cut off from her parents who the man in the flat cap kills in exchange for her life. She's basically raised in those perfect circumstances that she would be somebody who would turn to the man in the flat cap out of desperation. And she does. And when she does that, um, the terms of her deal are basically that she'll become the most powerful arcanist alive. But as part of that, she has to bear some of the burdens of the man in the flat cap's position um, and one day it will be necessary for her to facilitate a great change on his behalf. And what she interprets this to mean is that she will one day have to basically become the man in the flat cap and that she will have all of his power one day. And so she starts like obsessively researching him and finding out as much as she can about him because the thing with arcanism and arcanists is that it's all about this kind of violent individualism they don't really share knowledge and they don't really speak to each other very much and that's part of what the man in the flat cup does is he keeps them all separate and what they do is they kind of obsess over and become deeply obsessed with the idea of their own individual selves and that knowledge is not like something that should be shared basically it's all about like building white towers but to a very extreme degree and they're all on their own so because none of them share knowledge they can't establish any sense of community and they can't really support each other very effectively and they're more vulnerable to the man in the flat cap because of all so m's interpretation of her deal with the man in the flat cap is that she will eventually replace him and then separately she hears a prophecy from rytidia who she's kind of dating, that she will one day bear a child who will best the man in the flat cap. So she interprets this to mean that she will have a child who will beat the man in the flat cap and completely get rid of him. And she's like, oh, this might be a way to circumvent those problems that I foresee happening with me becoming the man in the flat cap. So I desperately want this to happen so I can avoid that consequence. And so she starts trying to get pregnant and she has Anna and then very quickly afterwards, less than a year later, she has Kitty in the hopes that one of them will be this prophesied child. But it turns out that neither of them are and she's pretty disappointed and she's terrible at hiding it and also not equipped to be a parent. Um, She's pretty young still at that point and she's never really been shown a solid method for parenting she doesn't know how to do it and she's also like carrying a lot of feelings of worthlessness inside of herself and she's afraid and I think as a combination of all of those things she's a terrible mother she neglects them she leaves them alone for long stretches of time she drags them around with her when she goes and works and like does fortune telling and stuff but most of the time they're not supervised they're not being watched they have to like storage for food in bins and stuff even though they have money she's not providing for them properly and then she starts to get obsessed with this place called Dizeth, which incidentally is the town I grew up in it's in North Wales it's a real place and she's obsessed with this location she moves the family there buys a house and leaves Anna and Kitty there unsupervised and they're about five when that happens five or six um, I can't remember off the top of my head if I mentioned the age they are anywhere, so correct me if I'm wrong. And then when they are seven or so, Em has another baby, and this is Sam. She's extremely weird about the whole thing, she's away even more whilst she's pregnant, and it's really confusing and upsetting for Anna and Kitty, and then she has the baby in the house, without any medical care, with Anna and Kitty there, in the room while she has the baby. And there's an extraordinary amount of blood, and the baby is very, very quiet and M is like unusually well immediately afterwards. Like this, the room is coated in blood. Uh, Anna describes the feeling of the carpet being so soaked in blood that she can feel it coming up through her toes. That's how much blood there was, but she's fine. Like apparently she lost a lot of blood, but it's like arcane magic weird stuff and it's pretty clear from the off that sam they are a weird baby they are not a normal baby and M can't stand to put them down anna and kitty feel weird in his presence the whole thing's just pretty bizarre it's really difficult and it gets more complicated when he learns to speak because immediately he's commanding people and telling people what to do and nobody can resist it they have all of this arcane power and no sense of control over it because they are a literal toddler. They don't know how any of this works. Also, at the same time, Sam has um, a non linear view of time. So they are simultaneously a toddler and also able to be aware of their own future. So, like to Sam, um, the past and the future and the present are all kind of happening at once not constantly not all of the time but there are these moments of profound connection and then they are definitely behaving like a child and having child responses to stuff but at the same time they have this weird nebulous awareness that they don't fully understand so it's not like they have a fully developed sense of self as a two-year-old or anything but it's more like he is a two-year-old who has all of this knowledge about what his future will be and what he's going to be and what he's going to do and what he's going to be capable of and then when Sam is seven he and Em work together to try to siphon off some of the power that is inside of him in order to try and prevent the end of the world and this goes horribly wrong and the house collapses on top of Sam. Em is able to get Anna and Kitty out safely in time but it all the whole building collapses on top of Sam and Sam doesn't die and is comatose for a very, very long time after that. It's really traumatic for everybody. They take Sam to the hospital but there's nothing wrong with them physically and eventually Em just brings him home under the guise of like, if he's not going to get better, we'll care for him at home until he dies. Um, But at some point they just kind of don't, really acknowledge that Sam exists and Anna and Kitty are growing up with this comatose magic brother. (laughs) Basically, he doesn't need to eat or drink or anything. He's just lying there um, breathing, but otherwise essentially dead. And he's growing as well, which is another strange thing. Anna and Kitty respond to this in their own ways. Anna has... Because she's the older sibling, even if it's only by less than a year, um, taken on a lot of responsibility and a lot of care. I think she feels that she has to and that she ought to take care of Kitty and Sam and that it's her responsibility to do that. Whereas Kitty feels that in a way that manifests very differently to the way that Anna feels it. So Anna is very actively like, I have to do this, I have to change this, I have to provide for everyone and do all of this, where I think kitty is much more like i have to function within the current system to the best of my ability and do as i am told and this even when they're young presents a lot of conflict for the two of them um but it gets worse when anna decides that she's going to learn to be a lawyer and she leaves she goes to uni she stops talking to them regularly and around this time sam is waking up from his coma for a couple of years before he's waking up from the coma though they seem to be waking up and kind of be present and speaking to people and stuff but they're not really fully cognizant of what's going on and um anna does visit when her terms aren't running but she's you know sporadic she's not there very often um her relationship with sam doesn't develop and sam doesn't remember anything until until after they turn 18 so to him functionally the relationship is non-existent but from Anna's perspective she's been trying to build stability and a life outside of what Em presented to her and she sees Kitty as being compliant in that system and Sam as being compliant in it too because he's so enthusiastic about what Em is doing so it puts all this distance in between them it's not helped by the fact that the man in the fat cap makes this kind of like creepy fake man out of her real fiance and turns him into just basically walking, talking, propaganda for the man in the flat cap which makes her even more isolated than she would have been anyway. And she was already struggling and feeling very estranged at that point anyway. And Kitty's response to everything that's going on is that she decides to work for M. And she starts doing that not long after the house collapses. So she's she's in her teens when she starts working for M. And Anna is really, really unhappy with it. And that's what starts to develop this rift between Anna and Kitty it's really quite sad but I think Kitty would conceptualise what Anna is doing as a kind of betrayal Kitty doesn't like what Emma's doing all the way she's living her life but from her perspective like this is who they are and to pretend otherwise is a kind of betrayal and I think that partly because of Anna leaving and Kitty perceiving what she's doing as being like a kind of abandonment Kitty responds to that by being even more compliant and even more immersed in what Emma's telling her about what she is and what she should be doing. Both Anna and Kitty are attempting to care for each other and Sam the best way that they can with the emotional tools that they've been given. Neither of them have the tools to effectively speak about their experiences with each other and their attempts at helping and healing each other end up really confused and sometimes hurtful because of that clear example of this is when Anna is continually pressuring Sam to have himself institutionalized for his mental health struggles even though it's pretty clear that there are other things going on as well and Sam being institutionalized in that way would be really harmful for them in that situation because there's other things going on and actually maybe it would make things much more complicated for them to deal with it would be very helpful for sam to have some kind of mental health support and i really strongly feel that i find it very reassuring that lots of people listen to this show and they're like sam go to therapy challenge and i'm like yes sam should go to therapy all that aside the sisters function as opposite sides of the same traumatized coin if you will anna withdraws and distances herself not sharing her personal experiences or allowing her siblings into her new life and she also criticises them from an external perspective. Um, Kitty, on the other hand, fully immerses herself in the abusive family dynamic and perpetuates the same harmful approaches as Em, whilst failing to communicate her discomfort to anyone. I think Kitty's really uncomfortable with the kind of things that she's doing. She doesn't like working for Em, but she's good at it and she feels that she ought to and that she has to show up and continue to show up, both for M and importantly for Sam, because Anna has gone. So... Anna represents a view that to change we must tear everything down and completely get rid of the past, set it on fire, don't learn from it, just destroy it. And Kitty represents a worldview that says change is not possible and we must learn to weather the storm instead. Um, Interestingly, these two worldviews are what dominate the man in the flat cap's perspectives too. He doesn't think that new stuff is possible anymore, um, but he also doesn't think that our world is capable of change, so he seeks to totally destroy it in order to basically feel something. Um, (laughs) Crucially though, um, these perspectives both involve closing oneself down from connections with others and emphasize an individual's responsibilities and potential power for change, whether they think that potential exists or not. So it's all about individualism, but just manifesting in two very different kinds of ways. These things, I think, are really, really relevant to the current state of the world, actually. And I don't think either of these are particularly helpful. And I think they both put so much stress on individual people. Whereas I think that in actuality, we're much more powerful when we're connected and cooperating with each other and listening to each other and being responsive to why people feel as though causing the mass suffering of already marginalised peoples is something that we should be advocating for or not advocating for change at all and simply just knuckling on and pretending like nothing is happening is something that people feel capable of of or willing to do Um, and understanding that these come from places of hurt is a really important step in my opinion (laughs) towards actually constructing change that is meaningful and uplifts people and I think this is very true particularly in conversations about climate change but that was a massive digression. These are the kind of things that I was thinking about when I was writing the story in terms of like how we engage with our world at this point of crisis that we're at. Because I really do feel that the way things are right now cannot continue. And it just feels like there has to be some kind of way to move forward. Um, So Sam represents an attempt at a kind of third way. And that is achieved through a connection with both Anna and Kitty as representatives of these worldviews and acknowledging the kind of suffering that has caused them to think and behave in these ways. It's a different circumstance for Sam, but it's similar. So he can really empathise with what they went through. And as a result, he's able to respect that and really get where they're coming from in their emotional responses to the situation and how those emotional responses have damaged the bonds between the three of them. And it's not just about having a connection with Anna and with Kitty individually, it's understanding the connections that they have with him too, so it's not just about Sam reaching out to them, it's about Sam trying to nurture back and forth between them and also appreciating what Anna and Kitty have for each other and also how they relate to other people in their lives and how they are a part of an interconnected web of relationships because... That's, you know, that's, that's really important. Their connections are relevant to their connection with Sam, even when they've got nothing to do with Sam, if that makes sense. So it's understanding Anna and Kitty as part of their own social networks, basically. And that's as important to Sam as that individual connection, because I think understanding people as connected to other people is really key to really conceiving of them as full people, if that makes any sense. It's also important to think about how when Sam almost ends the world and isolates Anna and Kitty, he places them in really similar rural pastoral environments, but doesn't allow them to communicate with each other. He puts Anna with Arlo, even though the two of them are not officially romantically entangled, which overstepped her boundaries massively and micromanages Anna in exactly the way that she has attempted to micromanage Sam in the past. And with Kitty, he gives her many pets and farm animals to care for, despite her never expressing a desire for that or indicating that it would be something that she would want. In a way, Sam is here mimicking Kitty's pressure to continue to serve others despite her own wants and needs. And that was what Kitty was doing when she was helping Em too. So Sam's misunderstandings about what would make Anna and Kitty happy stem from their own misunderstandings about how to make Sam happy and how to make themselves happy. In the show's happy ending, it was very important to me to mention Anna and Kitty, not because I wanted to tie a ribbon on them entirely, but because having them be a part of Sam's life is absolutely central to the meaning of the show. That doesn't happen because of blind forgiveness or because they don't hold one another accountable. It happens because they have worked to communicate and listen compassionately to one another. The biggest fuck you to the man in the flat cap is that they come out of everything that's happened attempting to build a future where they respect one another and love one another in a way that's more healthy and appropriate. I spent a lot of time in this episode thinking about metatextual and subtextual meanings. I tried to tackle the siblings from several angles but in the end this kind of thing was the kind of thing I wanted to talk about whenever I sat down to like plot out the different points I wanted to discuss. So that's what I did talk about. But there's a huge amount of scope to discuss these characters more. And if you have direct comments or suggestions for something related to that, please let me know because I'm currently in the process of writing the retrospectives for all of the episodes in season two. And I think that's a really pivotal time for Sam's relationships with his sisters. So I would love to incorporate any points that you'd like to add or if you've just got certain things you'd like me to go over in those episodes, do let me know because it'd be really cool to be able to talk about them. When I just... Yeah, it's a really meaty section of like... The themes of the show are happening in this dynamic between the three Enfield siblings. Before I go today, I'd like to do something a little bit different. Longtime friend of the show, H.R. Owen, creator of the fabulous audio drama Monstrous Agonies, has recently started a brand new show, Travelling Light. If you like the softer moments of Spirit Box Radio, and you like your stories to come with a slice of hope doused heavily in sci-fi, Travelling Light is the show for you. Just like Monstrous Agonies, the show is sensitive and emotionally insightful. It's funny, it's sweet, it's charming, and amazingly, you as the audience are a crucial part of how the story is told. You get to participate by submitting suggestions for the traveler's Next Adventure and by casting your vote in choose-your-own-adventure-style audience polls. Each episode comes with a gorgeous illustration too, and I love how these provide an enriching visual context for the story, and it really adds another dimension to the show. I honestly cannot recommend Travelling Light enough. You can find it by searching Travelling Light wherever you listen to podcasts, including wherever you're listening right now, or by following the links in the notes for this episode. For now, I really hope you have a great rest of your day. I'll see you in the next one. And until then, stay spooky, folks.
0: Tune in, get spooky.